Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's. The initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, we are going to be talking to Alix Peabody, an inspiring entrepreneur and founder of Bev, a brand of canned rosé. What I love is that on her LinkedIn, she refers to it as canned rosé made by chicks. So I'm excited to learn so much from her today. But before that, I'm very, very excited to introduce my co-host. And today I have Erin Mavian with me. Hi, Erin. Hi. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for being here. So Erin and I met in an interesting way. We were at an influencer event for a client, and we happened to be sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. And we started talking. And once in a while, I'll um, sit next to somebody who... I just connect with and someone who resonates with me and someone who speaks to my heart. And you were that person for me. I walked away at that event saying, I like that girl. I need to be (laughs) friends with that girl. I need to know that girl because you were so, so impressive with everything that you've done. So I want to tell everybody um, what you do. So at the time when I met you, Mm -hmm. you were the creative director at The Platform. Mm -hmm. The Platform is one of the most hipster spots in Los Angeles to be. Um, It's a retail and dining location that has also events and other things going on there. Mm -hmm. And Erin was there from the um, start of The Platform. But now she's left that job because she did such a great job making them so successful that she has moved on to be the creative director for Grand Central Market in downtown Los Angeles, which is a gem. Um, So tell us first about your time at the platform and Mm -hmm. what your role was there. Mm -hmm. So working with the owners who are a boutique real estate firm in LA, I had the opportunity to open and launch their first flagship property. So it was really looking at what are the basic needs of what's happening on a day-to-day basis in terms of how do you manage a space and and keep it open and running, but then also what are ways that you're going to either interest or excite or just attract people to come and not necessarily spend money, but time. Right. And it's it's the value and the currency of experience that we really focused on. So what I found really interesting about your job um, and the way you described yourself in the beginning was that, you know, you kind of oversaw the real estate, but then your title was creative director. Mm -hmm. And so you wore many hats and you still do that. And so you're overseeing tenants to go into the space that are going to create just the right curated experience. I wear a lot of different hats. You do. But with looking at real estate this way, it's been an incredible opportunity because there aren't a lot of people in this industry, and I say people being men, who don't who don't recognize the value of having a strategy behind the businesses that you're bringing in. Are you actually creating something greater than the space itself? Yes. Can you create a community 
And that's what's really exciting about what I do. And you so, so achieve that. I mean, the different things you can do there. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's happening is a lot of other properties are mm-hmm. learning from what you did at the platform. Thank you. Which is probably why you were asked to move to Grand Central Market. It's been a really interesting contrast because I've gone from opening a space that no one knew about, no one knew how to describe it, and now I have the opportunity to work with a space that's historic. How old is it? Over 100 years old. Wow. There are updates and improvements and ways to refresh. When I was brought on, I said, the place is in a really good place. This is a healthy business. I just have to make sure that I just gets a little better. Yeah. Tighten awesome. everything up. Great. Well, we are going to speak to Alex in a few minutes, and um, I'm excited to have you here as my co-host. Tell me why you were interested in talking to Alex today. To have someone who identifies themselves in an industry that's one dominated by men, uh, and I, I really admire her just approach to how she's going to do things, and it's embracing the fact that she's female and how do you use that to your advantage right and i i love hearing and learning from that perspective well she'll be here in a few minutes so as soon as she's here we'll get started great hi alix hi how are you i'm good thank you for having me thank you for being here today we're super excited to talk to you so first, uh, before we talk, I wanted to read the mission statement that you had on your website because I, I thought it was so cute and I loved what it said and what it stood for. So um, what it says is the beverage industry is male dominated, which is why there's very little out there that speaks to and about women in a positive, authentic way. We believe that women shouldn't be an afterthought at parties, the bar, and just in general. We know women take their fun seriously, which is why we think your drinks should take you seriously too. Bev is on a mission to redefine an industry one can at a time. So love that. And obviously you're a perfect, perfect fit for She Dynasty (laughs) and what we're doing. So I really appreciate you being here. Oh, no, of course. um, I I listen to your podcast and I think it's awesome. So I was very excited. So obviously what you've done is you've created an alcohol um, brand that is created by women for women, which is an interesting idea in itself. And so I want to start from one of your first sparks of independence. And so I understand that you were raised in New York City, but you went to high school in France and in Italy. And um, that was something that you decided to take on yourself at age 13, which takes a lot of courage. Yeah. So this is a story that my mother finds endlessly entertaining and terrifying at the same time, I suppose. But um, I was 13. I was living in New York. My mom is French by background, which is why my name is pronounced strangely Alix. I grew up understanding French. I spoke French when I was very little, but I lost it uh, for English. Mm -hmm. And my cousins could all speak French. And so when I was around 13, I just decided I need to speak French again. It's just something that I need to be able to do. I want to know what they're talking about most most of the time when they would come over during the summers. So um, my school had a program. I applied, didn't tell my parents I just applied myself and so you just um, decided that you were going to go out on your own I just decided that it was time for me to learn French and I was 13 and it was kind of ridiculous and then I got in came home and told my mom um, and dad I'm moving to France and they looked at me and they were like you're 13 years old you're doing nothing of the sort (laughs) Um, and then eventually they um, they got on board but 
Yeah. But so at what age did you actually go? 14. Wow. Yeah. It's, that's a really, <laughs> that's a wow. really brave thing to do at 14. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, I, I mean, it was funny because when I first got there, I just found myself crying, you know, because there, there were no cell phones at the time, which makes me feel older than I am. And email, you know, you had to go to the one portal in the one area of the school to get it. And I remember writing my mom saying, you know, I'm uh, I'm very sad. I, I've made a mistake and you need to come pick me up in the junior section of Gare Lafayette, the, you know, department store, mm-hmm. like the Nordstrom. And she just wrote me back. She's like, you're fine. If you're browsing the junior section of Gare Lafayette, I think you're just, you're going to be just fine over there. So she wanted you to kind of carry through with what you had done yeah. and not give up. Yeah. Well, my mom grew up, you know, back and forth between France and the States. So it was it's something that's been in our family a long time she used to run um, abroad programs and stuff like that so it's something that so it gave her a yeah. sense of pride that you wanted to do it oh for sure you know we're not we're not big quitters in my family so well do you think that this feeling of independence and self-sufficiency when you were young has really helped you as an adult has that carried through yes I for me definitely I've always been this way when I was little even before I went to France, I started the literary magazine for my middle school. And, you know, I've always been very independent minded. Um, After France, I came back to the States, then I moved to Italy, then I went to Andover, where I graduated from. So four different high schools. Wow. Yeah, then college. And then I moved out to California. Um, My whole family is back on the East Coast still. So that's always been just part of who I am, I think. And uh, I can't really tell if it's a nature or nurture thing, but um, probably a little bit of both. So I understand that you were um, bullied in high school. And this is something that um, resonates with me just because I was very severely bullied also in high school. So tell us what happened. Yeah. So I actually, it's funny because when you ask me this, I it's it's something that I don't think about very often. And I, and I wouldn't even have used that term per se, because it just felt like this is just high school and this is just how people are in high school. It's just labeled now. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was the new girl every year of, of high school, every single year, uh, which is kind of, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And when I went to the final school to to Andover to boarding school uh, and I got there and yet there was a, there was a gossip website. It was like a gossip girl website. And, um, someone had just started writing really nasty things about AP, the blonde new senior, of which there was only one, (laughs) which was very clearly me, and saying, you know, if I'd gone in and out of a guy's dorm, you know, who was one of my friends, um, those kinds of things. And it was, it was strange, you know, because I, I felt very attacked and nobody knew me. And I was very, you know, and I was new. And that was just something that um, was very early. And it was it was before, again, social media really blew up in the way that it has Thank now. Thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yes and no, right? So I feel like at the time it was relatively uncommon, but now in a way, in a way there's bigger spotlight on it. And mm-hmm. in another way, it's even more common, right. which is just so upsetting. Right. Well, two interesting things. Number one, um, I graduated high school with Monica Lewinsky, who was the first woman ever publicly shamed on the internet. Um, Don't even get I know. me started I know. on so that topic crazy. of conversation. So um, I knew her growing up. And so that was, you know, crazy to see. And so just to see now, you know, what it's become and how people have to deal with bullying online is 
unreal. And secondly, I had a situation in high school that sticks with me even today. I remember being at school and I'd gotten a brand new pair of Nike Air Jordans and I was super proud of them and it was super exciting to you know wear them to school. And I remember walking through the hallway in the morning and a girl walked over to me and she basically told me to take off my shoes that I had to give them to her. And I, yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) It was crazy. Like I had to take, this was a public school. It was kind of a a rough public school here in LA at the time. I changed schools right after that. But I had to take off my shoes, give her my Jordans. And um, I had to walk, you know, I remember walking outside trying to figure out for hours how I was going to tell my mom that, you know, the $100 plus shoes that she had just bought me were now gone. And it's funny because that's something that kind of carries through. So silly Those story, but stick with you. No, they stick with, with you. It and does. I think it, it for me personally, it's it's taught me a lot about uh, those experiences throughout life, high school, college, middle school. I mean, whatever. It's it's my parents always say that I don't have a mean bone in my body, but it's true. I mean, it's taught me to be really kind to people because you don't know what they're dealing with. Okay, so after high school, you went to an Ivy League school. I did, yes. So um, where'd you go? I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Beautiful. Your parents must have been very proud. Yes. So um, we looked online, and there right now is a 10% acceptance rate to that school. And the reason I bring this up, and I always love to talk to my Ivy Leaguers because I have a daughter who is obsessed with this idea of going to an Ivy League school. And so I always want to know everyone's secret just because she's picked the hardest school. She wants to go to Harvard, 2% acceptance rate. So Mm -hmm. what's the secret to getting into an Ivy League? So I'm actually a pretty funny person to ask this question to because when I first moved to Los Angeles, I did college counseling. I helped um, students with their applications to Ivy League schools specifically. I mean, when I'm really stressed out, I do SATs. That sounds crazy, but if I just the math problems, they make me calm. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Wait. It's what? Not, it's Stop. Not, it's not your – was this the inspiration for Rosé? You're like, I really need no, a drink no, this is just <laughs> of answering. <laughs> no, this is just so random. Oh, my gosh. This is such a weird quirk about me. I love I, this. Yeah. Wow. So I really – my family likes to do competitions on it. Um, on SAT questions? Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> so, oh, my God. I cannot wait for my daughter to hear you say this. It's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. And my mom participates, and it's fun. It's funny. But yeah, so my advice on on getting into one of those schools is they tend to be looking for a well-rounded class more than a well-rounded person. And so what ends up happening is, you know, they're looking at the, the class in its entirety as okay, we need someone who's really good at tuba and someone with this very interesting oh, experience. Interesting. And we I haven't need heard that perspective. Swim team and we need someone who's going to excel in the math department right. and whatever. And so my advice to people has always been make yourself a very, very sharp arrow that sticks out in people's mind that it's that, oh, that's that person. So for me, it was like, oh, that's that language girl. Right. Well, it, you know, it, there used to be a misconception that you had to be well-rounded in 20 different things, but it seems like the trend now is like pick one thing and be really freaking good at it. Right, right. It's it's way better to have one or two right. deep, deep things than to have a laundry list of activities that you do. So, well, I, I'm just <laughs> curious, um, you know, what role and, you know, an Ivy League college played in your success today? Like, do you think that it played a big role or do you feel like you could have done this without that education? I know that's a weird question because yeah, you that, don't know. That's interesting. I think the Ivy League stamp is something that people still care about, mm-hmm. especially as our generation is getting hired by the generation above us. Mm-hmm. 
I think that it's becoming less and less important. A lot of the people I've hired, I, I've never even looked at their resume at all. I mean, I don't know where they went to school for some of them. Um, I'm looking more at their work experience and their hustle and their grind and their mm-hmm. personality. And right, just having that connection in the room and making, yeah. obviously their experience is important. But. Yeah, but I think the thing that played the far bigger role in my success than college itself was actually being an executive recruiter. Mm-hmm. So I did that, which everyone thought I was crazy. I went I went to Dartmouth and then I went to Bridgewater, which is the world's largest hedge fund. Mm-hmm. And I was working there um, in client services and then in management. And I left to move to California to be a recruiter. Everyone just thought I was A insane. recruiter for tech companies. Tech companies. Yes. Yeah, so I did perfect. executive headhunting. Yes. That's a great choice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, did, perfect for what you're doing today, yeah, right? I did executive headhunting for VP level and up uh, venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. And it was a pay cut. And everyone was like, you don't really use your brain and that job that much. And I was like, but if you're paying attention from the perspective of a recruiter, you understand how to build businesses. Yeah. You know, that's that's the biggest skill that you need. You mm-hmm. understand how to sell. It's a sales job in many ways. And I think sales is the most important job that everybody needs to know how to do and nobody's taught. And oftentimes people think it's beneath them in a way. My recruiting job was really the biggest game changer um, in my life because I, I met everybody. I knew everybody. When I went out to build my own company or raise my own funding, I had so a bunch important. of connections yeah. that I'd built myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I knew how to hire people and I knew what to look for, which is all a business at the end of the day really is, right? I, I love connecting the dots between um, jobs that people have had in their past and how it plays a role into you know what they're doing today. So that sounds like obviously a perfect fit for what you do today. And I also want to stop and you know just talk about again the power of connections and building your network because obviously it sounds like you relied on that a bit. What kind of a role did that play? How big of a role? Oh, that's everything. I mean, building your network. I, I don't love the word network because I've never been a networky person mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I ha- I'm truly deeply interested in people. I love people. I mm-hmm. think they're fascinating. Every aspect of people is fascinating to me, and so. Over time, figure just meeting more people, trying to understand how they operate better, un- understand their psychology, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff is something that's that I've cared about for a long time, and I care about what they care about. And in doing that, you inadvertently build a quote network, right? But you just you're just friendly, kind, and interested. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's I've just always been that way. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I've built, I suppose, what you would call a network now. But it is critically important. But I would say it's. It's, it's more important to be interested, always stand by your actions and be somebody that people can be proud to know than it is to, you know, network for the sake of networking. Listen, for me, the word networking means um, I love connecting dots, meeting women and men, obviously, hearing about what they do. And then if I meet somebody else who I think can help that person, I put them together and say, hey, I met this person. I met I met you. Mm-hmm. I think there's something you guys can do great together because I see the synergies. I think people need to do more of that. And it sounds like 100%. that's what you're talking about. That's one of my favorite things to do. I'm more proud of the fact that I'm responsible for four marriages <gasps> and two babies as a result of that than, you know, the company itself. I was going to say, being an ex- if you're going into executive recruiting, I've always had the thought of pairing it with a matchmaker. Oh, yeah. It's a real thing. A multidimensional matchmaking surface. Alex, 
it was around this time that you said that you had a pretty big snag and you had developed some medical issues. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what had happened? Yeah. So I was living in San Francisco. This was right when I moved there for this recruiting job. And I got an ovarian torsion in my right ovary. Ovarian torsion is where your ovary just decides that it's going to flip on itself. Mm-hmm. For me, it flipped three times, 360 degrees. It loses all blood flow. It can flip the fallopian tube as well, and the organ starts to die as a result of that. So that happened to me, and it happened to me three on three distinct occasions. And every time they were trying to save the ovary, they had to cut some out, and over time they couldn't. Um, and so I had six surgeries over 18 months to deal with it, and, wow. uh, and then I had to freeze my eggs, which was not covered by health insurance even in that type of situation. It's less than 1% of all emergency ovarian surgeries. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very rare and yeah. very And you were bizarre. so young when this happened. I was 24. 24. Yeah. That's crazy. It and was that, pretty crazy. That's a, quite a decision to make to freeze your your eggs going through that process yeah. at such a young age. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about how that affected you know your psyche. And obviously, when you're 24, you probably weren't you know, in the mindset of starting a family yet, but you obviously think about the future. So tell us yes. a little bit about that. So I, I actually think this is so interesting um, because so I'm the eldest of five children. So I, while I wasn't necessarily actively thinking about a family, I've always thought about a family. I've always wanted, I'm, you know, I'm a big sister to four, uh, my youngest brother being 10 years younger than I am. And I think I didn't realize until, you know, basically this m- medical situation how much I was making decisions for my life today for a life that didn't exist yet, wow. if that makes sense. It does. And I think a lot of women do that. And we, we don't even realize we're doing it. But, you know, I, I moved and I was in, you know, I was in San Francisco and I was like, well, if I'm, you know, I can make a good living doing this and it's flexible and I can stay at home and that'll be great when I have kids. Or a lot of the advice I got from people when I was deciding whether or not to take the recruiting job, which I was, you know, in my mind taking for reasons to build out a community in San Francisco and that kind of thing. You know, particularly from a lot of the men, they were like, well, when you do have a family, you know, that's a great job to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until someone looked at me and said, hey, this isn't necessarily in the cards for you, which it's not guaranteed for many women, right? Just some of them don't get it as starkly as I did. Right. It wasn't until then that I realized how many sacrifices and how much I was holding myself back without even realizing that I was doing it. And in a way, it was extremely liberating, if that makes sense. It does. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. And how does that affect, one of the questions that um, people wanted to know is like, how does that affect like your dating life? Did you have to tell people and, you know, like when you're dating, you know, you're looking for a mate and people, you know, sometimes want to have kids. And so... You know, obviously this throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in it. So is it something that was on your mind? It was just something that came up. It was on my mind. Um, Yeah. So at first I had a small crisis of faith because I was wondering what value do I add into the world and into a relationship if I can't necessarily have kids. And that was a whole moment that I went through in my head by myself. But um, but then I kind of didn't think about it all that much uh, afterwards. And as I started, I met my um, fiance in an airport like a year and a half ago. Yay. Uh, yeah, which, <laughs> which is kind of fun. And and, um, and it was something that, that I told him pretty right out of the gate. But also, since it's happened, I mean, it's already been 
what, five years. And the technology specifically in reproductive health is Amazing. skyrocketing. It's moving so, so quickly. Yay. My One of my doctors was joking, we can get a rock pregnant. Like, don't worry. You know? So, <laughs> so um, we'll see. You know, but but uh, five years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. Oh and gosh. five years before that, wow. definitely not. I so, love that. Yeah. So it's, it's moving so quickly that I'm with every passing year, I get less worried, yeah. but we shall see. All right. So we're going to move into kind of your biggest spark. Um, so you had all these medical bills and you had this idea um, that you wanted to throw ticketed pool parties at your uncle's house in Sonoma. Yes. So tell us all about this fun idea. Yes. Yeah, so I had, when I had first moved to San Francisco, I thought that I needed some friends. So I invited everyone I knew to the, to a party and asked them to bring three people that they knew so that I could get to know people. The party was so much fun and pe- people kept asking me when I was going to do it again. And basically I said, I can't afford it. It's too expensive, you know, and I'm, I'm not doing that. But San Francisco in the summer is very cold. And Sonoma, if you go just a few miles north, mm-hmm. is, you know, 90 degrees. And my aunt and uncle had a pool and, you know, all just a nice landscape. And so I got people Basically, I started just hustling for these parties and making them ticketed events because people were really into them. And I got my friends who worked at Google to get me the Google bus. And oh my so gosh. I was going to out. ask, how did you get people out there? Because yeah, so I got the actually and transportation life hack. Get a bus to your party because then it's over when you want it to be over. <laughs> and everybody Noted. Leaves. That's a great idea. Yeah, great idea. it was really, um, it was clutch. But anyway, so yeah, so I had my friend who worked at Google get the Google bus, which is a benefit for them that they can hire it on the weekends. Yeah. Um, I fit a couple liquor stores against each other about which, you know, which parking lot it would pick up out of because they would get a whole bunch of business, obviously. And then I just took a cut of sales and then had what? them drive. Yeah, That's it was so smart. It was ridiculous. But um, I also had to let them know because it was like 200 to 400 people piling into these, you know, they needed to staff the store for that. How did you spread the word? How did so many people know about this party? It just spread really quickly because I think San Francisco in particular is a city where there's not a ton going on. Mm-hmm. It's not like a New York or an LA. And so people are looking for, you know, fun things with high quality people. And also when you're in San Francisco, the ratio is usually pretty off. Right. So if you can, you know, get a good mix, get a good ratio going. That was something that is very true about Silicon Valley in general. It's every bar you walk into, it's more men than women. Every time you go anywhere, it's very, very male heavy. And there was something different about having an atmosphere that was actually female heavy. Oh, uh, more you know, female heavy. Yeah, more female heavy. And um, and it's not just that the guys were excited, but it was that, you know, but it was that there's there's an air of respect and responsibility that comes along with that that uh, I think is really important and needs to be, you know, especially when women are there on their own terms. The dynamic of, of the environment changes a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. How much were the tickets? Oh, well, it depends when you bought them, but they went up to like 300 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You were raking it in. It's like a festival, you know, small day. I love that you just had this kind of entrepreneurial spark of an idea and it helped pay your some of your medical bills? Yes. Yeah, it did. And that was the, that was the point of doing it or was it just something you were were interested in obviously doing as well? No, no, no. That was the reason I did it. Good idea. Crazy. And this brought the initial spark for Bev? Is that where yes. like the seed of the idea came? Yes, it's where the seed, like the seedling, okay. let's say. Um, okay. So I, I really loved the female 
aura of of social events and what it means when you know when women are kind of the the center point and the center focus versus when men are and Dartmouth is a very fratty school finance is fratty tech is fratty Mm -hmm. you know entertainment in LA is fratty it's all it's all one and the same and so originally I thought I wanted to build some sort of events media company that centered around this idea of you know what if women had a space at the bar like what if women owned the bar right Mm -hmm. and um Moved down to Los Angeles as a result of that, thinking that I was going to go down sort of the media path. And that's why you went to USC. Events. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I was like, it's I should all probably... connecting. And we were all yeah. like, USC, how like, did why that Why did come? that happen? <laughs> yeah, no, I was oh, like, okay. well, I should probably know how to make media if I want to build a media company. I don't I was clearly just kind of following whatever seemed once one foot in front of the other. But yeah, but then I realized pretty quickly that if I really wanted to have a brand that had a lot of staying power and a mission and a message... I it needed to be tied to a product that people interacted with. And so you came up with the idea for the rosé, the canned rosé. Yes. Tell us about that moment. I basically wanted to do something in alcohol because of the partying nature right. that I'm, you know, in the culture that I want to attack. And I realized that the alcohol industry is very complicated and how things are sold and there's a whole network of distributors that you have to go through in order to sell alcohol at all. And it's a very tight network and it's very, very hard to break into. So I realized pretty quickly that if I wanted to be able to sell on my own, I had to have a very specific license that's only allowed for wineries. And so I realized that I had to have a wine. And rosé to me was the biggest party wine that that there was. And I put it in a can, not because it simply because I had no money and I figured that it's very hard to market something that you pour into a glass and then you don't know what it is and it's a lot easier to market something that's a cute can that people want to take pictures of and it it starts to market itself. So that's how it ended up in a can. I had no idea that this was going to be an explosive category. So that was just my really? guardian so it was kind angel. Of, kind of a fluke and it then was, it worked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So did you come up with the name right away? Did you... No, I went through so many names. And it was actually one of my friends who was helping me come up with all of the different names, wrote on the top of a piece of paper, Project Bev. I wanted it to be a woman's name that was powerful and but also not necessarily someone you knew and hated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so then Project Bev, and then we were like, oh, well, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And by some miracle, no one had trademarked it. Really? Weird. OK, so I understand there's a cat in the story. <laughs> Harold. Harold is critically important to the company. <laughs> he's, he's the company cat. He's my cat. I actually got him the day after I incorporated the company. Understood. I found him on Facebook. I saw a picture of him and I was like, I don't know what it is about that cat, but I have to own it. Aww. And so I flew to New York and got Harold. And he, you know, for a while he was my CFO. He did marketing. You know, mm-hmm. he really ran a lot of things. He was my emotional support animal. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, Harold has become a little bit of an icon and he's on the walls of our new office. There's like murals of him and t-shirts of him and people that. are just really obsessed with him. <laughs> so going back to the very beginning, you funded your company starting out in a very interesting way, and you decided to to use your 401k. Yes. Can so, you tell us about that? Yes, for sure. So I, for starters, wish that I had realized that I had this money when I was dealing with my health problems, but, <laughs> but I did not realize it because you go to your first job and you just don't really know what all the paperwork is right. on the first day, and you just start like checking boxes. Yeah. I had 
apparently been putting money away in this 401k that Bridgewater had been matching for me. And so I got basically a notice when I was just trying to move and clean up all of my stuff that was like, hey, your 401k, you know, change your address, whatever. And so I cashed the entire thing and I bought 300 gallons of rosé with it. So was that a smart decision or a not smart decision? You know, jury's out. I'll let you know. But I think I think at the end of the day, it was, it, you know, it's worked out so far, but we'll see. It's a brave decision. You know, yeah. you were passionate. You believed in what you were doing. And I think it's, um, Thank you. it's really encouraging to hear that you, you know, felt so strongly about it that you were willing to like cash out, take the money and let's do this. So you actually bought 300 gallons of rosé. Yes. And the cans and the sleeves. Right. And, all that stuff. Yeah, I actually got I got the rosé from a guy I de- met on a dating app. Again, be kind to people and be interested in their lives. Absolutely. So it works out. But I met this guy on a dating app like two and a half years before, and it turned out he worked in wine when everyone in Silicon Valley works in tech. Yeah. So I thought it was just interesting. And so I called him, and I was like, I, you know, I need – rosé and he's like go to the the grocery store I don't like stop call like why are you calling me I haven't heard from you in two and a half years and um turned out I was like no I need like a lot of it and he's like oh okay so it turns out his roommate's family was one of the biggest wine suppliers in the state do you still work with them yeah really yeah yeah see look at those connections they're awesome yeah that's so wonderful and did you Going through the process, did you have the opportunity to taste and identify? Oh yeah, I designed what it was your, the wine you the myself. Wine. Yeah, wow. so and by designed, I mean I am not a winemaker, <laughs> but I worked very closely with our winemaker. So basically, was saying, you know, I want it to taste like this. Ours, ours has zero grams of sugar. I wanted it to be very dry, yep. drink easily, and I wanted it to be drinkable out of the can because a lot of the products out there are line extensions, right. and so it's just. Yeah. It can be a lot of wine to the face. It's not designed to be consumed that way, but mm-hmm. ours is. So I am fascinated, and I harp on this in every single one of my interviews, by people who are able to take an idea without a ton of you know backing or experience or knowledge in the category and bring it to fruition. And so I want you to like tell everyone listening, how do you go from an idea in your head to holding this beautiful little can in your hand. How does that happen? And I know it's a big loaded question, yeah. but there's like a there, lot of I, if I could if I could <laughs> but if I could bottle that and package it for people to explain it, that would be, you know, that's yeah. what everybody wants to know. So I mean the thing that I say to my team all the time is the only way out is through. For me, it was a personal financial mm-hmm. decision where I put myself in a position where I could not fail. Failure was not an option. It was not even on the table. I was going to figure it out or I was really screwed. And you know, by the time the company started, I'd racked up a whole bunch of credit card debt, trying to, you know, on planes, trying to yeah. um, get funding and all of this, all this kind of stuff. Anything, anything that could go on a credit card did. Um, and so I put myself personally in a position where failure was just quite simply not an option. And when you get yourself into that mentality, whether it's through doing something like what I did, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but, um, or having a co-founder that you're not going to let down or, you know, or just being able to put yourself in that mindset, you have to, have to, have to know that, that failure is just not on the table. Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail because they give up. Right. So what was your first step? Um, okay, so the very first thing that I did, I so I got my cousin, who is our creative director now, but she she was just the only person I knew who 
knew how to do Photoshop right. that lived near me. And, use, and, you, and it, that's a really good thing for people to hear. Like tap, like tap into the resources, people you know, to help you to yeah, start up. And I asked her to help me mock up a can. Like, what does this look like? And just, you know, after work, she at certain points I was driving her crazy because I'd show up at her house at like 7 p.m. after she'd worked all day and, you know, made her make 100 different can mock-ups. Um, you know, the handwriting on the can is my cousin's handwriting. This is the original logo? The logo has been cleaned up, but this is the original, where it says break the glass is the original writing. Right. People can't see it, but on the side of the can, it actually says break the glass in large handwritten um, lettering, which is yes. really cool. Yes. Yeah, so we have our own font now, which is called Emma, because it's Emma's handwriting. <laughs> pretty, Love it. Pretty much. But, um, but yeah, so the first thing I did was I tried to pull together a deck essentially like a proposal what would this even look like and a lot of google and then the, the next thing i did was there was just a lot of research and people get lost in the research hole right. forever right mm-hmm. and the reality is that if you're doing something that's a good idea someone hasn't done it or someone hasn't done it as well as you're going to do it right. if it's going to succeed and so if you stay in the research hole forever you're not going to find anything. Like the answers are inside. They're not outside Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And so for me, setting timelines and deadlines for myself were really, really important. Calling people, asking questions. But what did you do with the decks? Who would you take them to? Well, at first, very tactically, I found a, a lawyer. And then I went to the lawyer and convinced them to incorporate me and to set me up as a business without charging me until I had funding. Oh, you have a really I, good skill at doing Apparently. Like I, I don't know. I was, like, <laughs> I was just like, help me. And okay, they good. were like, this sounds like a good idea. Okay, sure. Good. And then what I did was I did everything that I could to take the money to make the product. And that was just going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, trying to figure out, especially in my industry, it's someone's mom, someone's brother, someone's uncle. Like it's just all a web And so I figured out how to produce it, which was a complete crazy experience. Mm -hmm. And and then I produced it. And then I took the stuff that I'd produced. So how many cans, when you produce it, do they make like samples, like 100 for you or? No, it's very, very hard. Like the minimums are extremely high. Like what was the minimum? So normally the minimum on a run is a tank full of wine and I So you're stuck with the product now. You gotta sell it. Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't afford that at first. So I convinced the friend of a, of the guy that I met on a dating app to sell me only three hundred gallons, which is a tote. So they actually lost money on that sale because of the labor required to put it into a vessel that's not so basically, it's a lot of convincing people that I they're to, I need to bring investing. you into my company and put you on the convincing yeah. <laughs> team. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's convincing a lot of people that they're investing in something that's going to be way bigger. And if you guys do this for me now, we're going to stick with you. And it's, it. it's going right. to be a big, you know, and it turns out we're one of the fastest growing suppliers they've ever worked with, right? So did you, did you have to keep the product in your apartment or they keep it for you while you distribute oh, it? Oh, no, it was totally in my house. Yeah, it was You were all, living with the rosé. Yeah, all and, of it. And Harold. Yes. So we had 300 <laughs> gallons, which was about a pallet. I don't even, like 200 cases of it or something like that. And then I took it and I put it at a whole bunch of parties in Silicon Valley where I knew angel investors were going to be who I would want to show my deck to. Nice. We were um, we were self-distributing because of our license, but then we got picked up by a full distributor, and we're with Southern Glacier now, which is the largest distributor in the country, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. 
All right, so Alix, you have found um, great success early on. Um, I understand that um, you started the company in 2017 and your first round of funding was $1.5 million. And later on, you moved to another large round of funding that was over $7 million, is that correct? Yes. I mean, wow, in such wow. a short, I mean, I'm so impressed with you. Thank you. I mean, in such a short period of time, like obviously people believe in you and your product and what you're doing. Um, do you feel that you've found success yet? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> just, you've only just begun? No, no, not even a little bit. Um, I think like most women and most entrepreneurs in general, I, I for sure struggle with imposter syndrome, but um, but I do love my life. So that that's a form of success for that sure. Is I love success. what I do. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll see. I mean, t- to me, I think the, the the outstanding thing still, and it's funny when you get funding and you have a company, a lot of people just start to assume that you're in a really stable position. But personally, it took me two and a half years to dig out of the hole that I went into to start the company. Um, You know, and some of those expenses are reimbursable and some of them are not because they're just your rent, right? right? And and stuff like that. So I'm sure I'll feel a lot better when everything's financially, personally as stable as it is for the organization, you know? And I think that a lot of people, that happens to a lot of entrepreneurs. I joke with my friends about it all the time. They're like, I've got a company valued at this and I have $20 in my bank account, which is, which is a reality. Well, I love um, speaking to women, you know, at this point in their career, just because I know we all believed in you so much. So we're so, so excited to see where this goes Thank for you. Thank you. So I'm going to um, now kind of hand this over to Erin, who's going to do some rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. It's just some quick ones. What? Alex keeps you up at night. Numbers. If you could switch <laughs> careers completely, what would you do today? Same thing, different industry. Oh. Another male-dominated industry, perhaps? Yes. I would fuck some shit up in another industry. <laughs> I like <laughs> another that. Another male-dominated industry. I like that. What's the best advice you were ever given? Strategy is about all the things that you don't do. I like that. Oh. I have to think about that for a minute. Strategy is about all the things you don't do. Oh, yeah. That's yes. good. That's really good. Okay. Okay. Do you have any passions outside of work? Harold's, <laughs> for sure. And I am a big runner. Who would you say is your biggest competitor today? I don't like giving them airtime. I don't blame you. <laughs> best and worst parts about running an alcohol brand? The best parts is that it's very easy to see how big of an impact we're having based on some of the people we've been able to recruit. And because it's so rare to have a company like ours that has a culture and a mission like ours, the worst part is the same thing, that it's it can also be really sad to see just, just how excited particularly women are to be at a company in this space that respects and honors and values them. It's kind of mind-blowing. Do you have any female role models? I'm a big Emily Weiss fan. Okay. Yeah, I I like her. I think she's very uh, real and obviously successful, but doesn't let her success turn her into something that's not approachable, which is something I I strive to do myself. Have you had a mentor? Yes, I've had had a bunch of mentors throughout my life. But again, same way with networking, I wouldn't necessarily call them mentors. I just Mm. say I just have, I just collect friends. Are there any aspects of your your job or your position that you wish you were better at? Yes, all of them. Always room to grow? <laughs> oh, all of them. I wish that I were better specifically at project management and process management. 
I'm someone who just has, I work in spurts and I get big ideas and then I'm like, run, run, run. And then it's a lot of hurry up and wait for my team. So I try to, I've been getting better at it, but I want them to have less whiplash from my idea whiplash. And then the last one, what's your favorite beverage outside of your own, Bev? Water. Good answer. Hydrate. Uh, (laughs) I love that answer. You should drink them together. (laughs) I love it. All right, I'm going to ask you one last one, and I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, Actionable advice for those listening. If you had one piece of advice to tell someone who was about to start a company or had an idea and wanted to move it to something real, what would you tell them to do? Just keep going. Just keep swimming, as they say in Finding Nemo, and just one foot in front of the other. Just... I think a lot of the times I view life as either like a bowling alley with the bumpers up or, um, you know, one of those like Mario Kart games mm-hmm. where things are going to keep coming at you and sometimes they're going to crash, but it's just going to keep moving forward. Right. Or if, you know, it's a bowling alley, it's eventually going to get to the end of the lane, but you just can't That's stop It's a really moving. good analogy. Mario keeps going. It just keeps going, you know. I like that. And sure. Sometimes <laughs> you, you got to start over and whatever. Yeah. You just keep going. So yeah, you hit the um, roadblocks. You hit the. Yeah. It, the only time you really fail is when you stop moving. Love it. Okay. Well, I think that concludes our interview. I want to thank, thank you, you so much for being here today. You're such an inspiration. Thank you so much. Um, I think people listening are really going to learn a lot from you. And Erin, mm-hmm. I want to thank you as well, because I'm welcome. very inspired by you as well and excited to see where both of you guys go in your careers. Thanks. And um, I think that's it. Awesome. All right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. 